Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Acts the 13th chapter where my Bible is opened up. And I would invite you to be opening up a Bible to Acts chapter 13 as well. Going to notice just a verse or two here in the 13th chapter of Acts that will help us to get started in our study of the Word of God this morning. That is what this part of our worship is all about for these next few minutes. It is great to see everybody on this wonderful Lord's Day morning. What a beautiful day the Lord has granted unto us to assemble together so that we can give and receive encouragement as we worship Him in spirit and in truth. I'm so glad that you're here. We do have guests, a number of guests, and we're just so glad that you've come to be with us and hope that you find everything that we're doing today to be done in keeping with the teaching of the New Testament. And if it's not, or if you have a question about something that we say or do, you, you bring that to our attention. We'd be glad to sit down and discuss those things with an open Bible. I've already kind of been warned. Brother Ed brought a big old box of tomatoes that's sitting back there in the, in the foyer. And I've already been told that if folks don't like the preaching, they're liable to run back there and start tomatoing the preacher. Thank you for that, Brother Ed, but hopefully that will not be the case this morning. Hopefully we'll learn some things that will help us and we'll be glad that we were here. Hope you've got Acts 13 queued up. This is Paul's sermon that he preaches in Antioch of Pisidia. And in this sermon, he recounts some important figures and events of uh, Israelite and Jewish history. And part of that is recorded in verse 22. In Acts 13, verse 22, Paul says that God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. And that, that makes one. That is the first time that Acts 13.22 has been quoted in this building this week. But it will not be the last. Because that verse serves as the foundation, as the jumping off point, as the inspiration for our topic of study for this year's Vacation Bible School. For the next three nights, and in fact you can kind of even lump tonight in there, for the next four nights, this building will be filled with singing and praying and learning and teaching as we study together events from the life of David. And we're going to do that so that we can do what Acts 13.22 talks about, so that we also can have a heart for God. Tomorrow night, on Monday, we will study what it means to have a courageous heart. On Tuesday night, we will talk about what it means to have a respectful heart for God. And on Wednesday night, we'll wrap all of that up by talking about what it means to have a tender heart for God. And all of those lessons will serve not only to educate us, but even more so to motivate us to truly be a man or a woman or a boy or a girl after God's own heart. In fact, that expression has really kind of become synonymous with David, hasn't it? can't tell you how many times I've been preaching and I'm talking about David and I just kind of offhandedly say he was a man after God's own heart. And so I'm looking forward to exploring that this week. Revisiting some of these well-known accounts in the life of David so that we can better become people after God's own heart. Hope you're looking forward to that as well. But before we start some kind of an in-depth study of a man after God's own heart, I'm actually itching to talk about somebody else this morning. You know, we spent the better part of the months of May and June reading in the book of 1 Samuel as part of our Bible reading program here at Lakeside. And while David most certainly played a huge role in the story of 1 Samuel, one might argue that he's kind of the hero in that book, 
There is, however, another character in 1 Samuel that dominates its pages. Another character that takes up about 22 of the 31 chapters in 1 Samuel. And I must tell you that I wanted very badly to preach on this particular fellow a couple of months ago to coincide with where we were in the reading, but I restrained myself. I was able to hold off on that because I knew that I wanted to use his story to help kick off Vacation Bible School Week. And in fact, I'm not the only person who's ever made mention of this fellow in a sermon. Paul actually did. If you're still there in Acts 13, bump back up one verse. In verse 21, there Paul says, as he talks about Israel asking for a king, God then gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. This morning, I do want to talk to you about Saul. What you may know is that Saul was the first king of Israel. But what you may not know is that Saul is also the first supervillain in the Bible. Now, he doesn't wear a big dark cape, and he doesn't have a sinister maniacal laugh. But he is, in many ways, the antithesis of David. He is what I am calling this morning, a man not after God's own heart. Now you might be thinking right now, Josh, well the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say Saul was not a man after God's own heart. And I get that. And you may think that that's that's kind of a harsh assessment of Saul in his life. But I've got to tell you, my reading and my study of 1 Samuel the last couple of months, it has really left me with no other conclusion but this. Here is a man who became a homicidal maniac. A man who was utterly paranoid. A man who seemingly could not repent. A man who was full of himself. A man who was absolutely incorrigible. During his 40 year reign, Saul disobeyed God with seeming impunity. The list of things that Saul did wrong, it stretches for miles. He slaughtered the priests of God. He took the priestly office upon himself. He tried to murder David. Where would we be if that plan had succeeded? We wouldn't even have a topic for vacation Bible school this week. He did all sorts of ungodly things that ended with him being involved in witchcraft and the occult the night before he died. This is not a guy who just did a few random boo-boos. No, 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 no. Saul was a complete failure on just about every front imaginable. And what I want to know is I want to know how did that happen? How did that happen? You know, if we're going to spend the next few days kind of looking closely and figuring out what made David have a heart for God, then I think it behooves us to spend a few minutes this morning trying to figure out why Saul didn't have a heart for God. What exactly went wrong with this man? You know, when the preacher is putting together his PowerPoint and he's trying to find some some graphics and some illustrations and maybe maybe an image of King Saul to use on the screen... It's kind of difficult, uh, primarily because they didn't have cameras back in the time of the Old Testament. That makes things a little bit hard. And so you've got to kind of do the best that you can do based on the information that you've got and based on uh, just kind of people's speculation. But I must tell you, I do believe that this particular painting done by Rembrandt back in 1660, I think it might well capture the image of Saul, at least the one that I've had in my mind, just about the very best. There's something about just that that brooding look. That uncertainty etched across his face. 
that suspicious glare as he sees David there playing the harp for him. It's probably not a perfect rendering, but but I think in many ways Rembrandt captured the essence of the biblical portrait of Saul. So I want to know, what happened to this Whereas David on one hand succeeded so greatly, and we will see that over the course of the next few nights, I want to know on the other hand, what happened that caused Saul to fail so miserably? Where, I'm asking, where did he go wrong? This morning what I want to do is I want to share with you three big ideas. And believe me, this could have been like a 40-point sermon, but I've boiled it down to three. Three big ideas that, first of all, will explain Saul's downfall. Secondly, will hopefully stand in stark contrast to what we come to learn about David over the next few days. And then thirdly, and most importantly, I hope that these three big ideas will serve for us as a deterrent so that we will not duplicate his spiritual failures. Let's talk this morning about a man who didn't have a heart for God. And that all begins by just making an observation about humility. Because one of the very first things that you notice when you start looking at the life of Saul is that he failed to hold on to his humility. Let's get over into 1 Samuel now. That's actually where we'll be for the remainder of the lesson. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, in 1 Samuel chapter 10 is where we're going to start. And it always is worth just kind of giving this disclaimer. I recognize that we are not under the Old Testament law. We're not bound by that covenant any longer. And we do well to make that point. The passages like Romans 15 verse 4 and 1 Corinthians 10 talk about how the Old Testament is profitable for us. While we don't go there looking for doctrine and for law, we are able to go there and learn some things about about character. We're there to learn some things by example. And that's what we want to do. We'll learn from the good example of David the next three days. But right now we want to look at the miserable example of Saul. I'm looking here in 1 Samuel chapter 10. This is the anointing of Saul as Israel's king, at least the public anointing of Saul. Begin with me in verse 20, in 1 Samuel 10 verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by a lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. The clan of the Matrites was taken by a lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by a lot. But when they sought him, he couldn't be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and they took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Now, that's kind of an unusual way for a king to begin his reign. It is especially unusual because earlier in this same chapter, Saul had had a private ceremony where he was anointed king. And so, as we come here to these verses, it's not like Saul didn't know what was going on. No, he knew. He knew exactly what was happening there. As Samuel is casting the lots, and as he goes from the tribes to the clans, down to the specific families, Saul knows all along, it's going to be me. It's going to be me. I am going to be the king. And what I find impressive about that is the fact that Saul does not just jump out right in the middle of all that and say, hey Samuel, you can stop this nonsense. We already know. I'm the guy. I'm going to be the king. Look at me, everyone. I am your king. Saul doesn't do that. Saul exercises some restraint. 
Instead of going and seizing the spotlight, verse 22 says, he's over there hiding behind the baggage. Which says to me that at least in some small way, Saul had some humility about him. In fact, I think we see even more humility. Look in the very next chapter. Look in chapter 11. In chapter 11, Israel receives a threat from the Ammonites. And that comes to Saul's ear at chapter 11, verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Verse 5 now. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. Hey, that's pretty humble beginnings for a king, don't you think? He's out plowing the field. He's not building himself up a big elaborate palace, is he? I think that also speaks to Saul's humility here at the outset. In fact, it doesn't stop there. Continue on in chapter 11. After he rallies the people to victory over the Ammonites, look what's said in verse 12. In verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring those men that we may put them to death. Evidently, when Saul was anointed, there was maybe a a vocal minority who said, this guy shouldn't be king. Why would we make this guy king? And now that Saul has proven himself, the rest of the people are saying, hey, we need to find those people and we need to just put them to death. They shouldn't be saying that about the king. He's done a really good job. But I want you to notice Saul's response in the next verse. Verse 13. In verse 13, Saul says, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord... The Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Just take score of that right there. There is kindness. Saul is forgiving. And most importantly of all, he gives God the glory. At this point in our study, things look pretty good, don't they? Saul seems to have Saul well in hand. He is humble and his humility is in fact something that I think is to be admired. Here's the problem. It doesn't last. It doesn't last at all. Chapter 14 now. In chapter 14, the Israelites, they are routing their enemies. They're routing the Philistines. And Saul, as that is happening, Saul makes everybody take this really foolish vow. In chapter 14 and in verse 24, the men of Israel, they had been hard pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. That's that foolish vow. And as it turns out, when you look at verse 27, Saul's son Jonathan, he doesn't get word of that foolish vow and he ends up breaking the vow. Watch how that plays out. Drop down to verse 43. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. Verse 44. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. What in the world? This is his son. It's his kid. Why doesn't Saul just say, you know what? That was a really foolish oath on my part. That was a really dumb thing for me to have said back there. I really messed up back there. I shouldn't have made those statements. Instead, Saul just recklessly presses forward and he refuses to admit that he had made a big mistake. In fact, that continues on in chapter 15. Look in chapter 15 now. This is the occasion where Saul does not utterly destroy the Amalekites as God had instructed Look at what he does after he only partially obeys the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, look in verse 12. 
Samuel rose early to meet Saul the next morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. And he turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. What? The guy makes a monument to himself? Where is the guy who just a couple of chapters earlier was giving all of the glory and all of the credit to God? What happened to that guy? And of course, if you know how this particular episode in chapter 15 plays out, then you know that when the prophet does come and confront Saul, he ends up blaming everybody and everything else, refusing to acknowledge that he had sinned. And I think this is exactly where we need to start whenever we start tracking Saul's failure. Saul went off the rails when he refused to acknowledge that he had done wrong. That shows a lack of humility. Because the very essence of humility is to understand yourself correctly. I want to say that again. Humility is not thinking too little of yourself. Humility is not thinking too much of yourself. Humility is having a proper estimation of oneself. Which means then that the truly humble person never is going to deny wrongdoing. Never is going to live under under the delusion that I'm just perfect all the time. No, the truly humble person knows himself or knows herself. The truly humble person will be the first one to confess that they've done wrong, not be the first one to blame and to rationalize and to go shoving it off on other people. If talking about all of this kind of makes you start thinking about David, it ought to. Because I do believe the reason the Bible gives us so much information about Saul's life is because his example is in such stark contrast to David's. David was a man who could admit wrongdoing. David is a man who will say, I have sinned, and he means it. And David is a man who is truly humble. Maybe what you and I then need to be asking ourselves here is this. And that is, what do we do when we sin? What do I do whenever I do something that is wrong? If a brother or a sister in Christ, if they come to you, maybe pull you aside after services, or maybe you're not even at services, and so maybe they come and see you at your house, or they call you on the phone and they say, Hey, I could talk to you for a few minutes. I'd like to talk to you about why we haven't been seeing you at worship here lately. I'd like to talk to you about some things that I've noticed in your life and I'm not sure that you notice. Let me ask you, what is your reaction to that kind of conversation? If the preacher gets up and presents a sermon and that sermon just stomps all over your toes and maybe even punches you in the face because the clear truth of Scripture, it is convicting you that your life is not what it ought to be. How do you respond to that? How do you feel about that kind of thing? Maybe even in just your personal daily reading of the Scripture. When you're at home, Luke talked about that, that we would be involved in just reading the Scripture privately and with our family and studying the Word. In your daily reading of the Bible, if you come upon something that exposes sin or error in your life, what do you do about that? Do you try to kind of shift the blame for that? Do you maybe go pointing the finger at others? Do you make all kinds of lame excuses about that? Do you maybe just try to deny it altogether? Do you get defensive? Where'd Saul go wrong? Saul went wrong when he lost his humility. He couldn't admit that he had made a mistake 
Which meant, secondly, that he could never learn from his mistakes. You don't admit that you make mistakes. You sure ain't going to learn from your mistakes. And let's be sure, Saul made a pile of mistakes. Can I catalog those for you? In chapter 13, he did not wait for Samuel, as Samuel had told him to, and so he ends up offering unlawful sacrifices. In chapter 14, where we read a moment ago, he ends up making that rash, dumb vow. In chapter 15, he fails to completely, entirely obey the Word of God. But I want you to know, Saul's just getting started. In chapter 17, he cowardly refuses to go out and fight Goliath. You know, we spend an awful lot of time thinking about and talking about David in that story of David and Goliath. And as well we should. But I think sometimes what happens is, is we fail to emphasize that it was Saul who was supposed to be the leader of God's people. Saul should have been the first one out there to fight Goliath. He should have been the one standing up and saying, you know what, I'm trusting in the Lord. I'm trusting in God that He's going to take care of you. He should have been setting the pace. He should have been the leader, but nope. Nope, Saul's not able to do that. That, of course, then leads to chapter 18 where he is jealous of David, and he is jealous of David's success and his fame and popularity. That then leads to several chapters, beginning in chapter 19, where Saul chases David around and tries to actually murder him. Maybe the low point in some of those chapters is found in chapter 22, where Saul massacres the priests of God. In a rage of fury, he slaughters God's holy men. And then all of that culminates in chapter 28, when Saul finds himself consulting a medium at Endor instead of consulting the Lord. In all of that, and that spans several years, in all of that, all along the way, there are numerous opportunities for Saul to learn and to grow from his mistakes. And in fact, I would have you know, Saul actually had every advantage that a person could want to make that learning and make that growing happen. To start with, think about this. He had Samuel. He had a prophet of God at his right hand. He's right there to admonish Saul, to confront Saul, to say to Saul, hey, this is wrong. Hey, don't be doing that. Hey, get it turned around, buddy. You're disobeying the Lord. He had Samuel there. He as well. He had Jonathan. His own son was a godly young man. Jonathan was a young man who often showed faith and courage when his father would not. In fact, the more that we learn about Jonathan, kind of Jonathan's kind of the microcosm in the story of of Samuel here. You learn about Jonathan a lot in chapter 14 and in chapter 20 about his character. And the more we learn about Jonathan, the more we start thinking, man, let's make this guy king. Let's get this Saul fella off the throne. He's rotten. Put Jonathan in there. This guy knows what he's doing. And so Saul has a great example right within his own family that he could learn from if he wants. And then, of course, Saul had David. David shows up in Saul's court as a young man. He is bright-eyed. and He is full of faith. David is everything that Saul should be. Courageous. He trusts in God. He's a born leader. He retains his humility. Surely, surely one of these guys is going to rub off on Saul. Surely one of these guys is going to be able to help Saul to do what's right and to be what he ought to be. Surely Saul is going to take advantage of these men. 
That is, he's going to go and he's going to, he's going to talk with these men. He's going to try to learn from them, profit from them, from their counsel. He's going to learn from their good, godly example. He's going to be thankful that God would place such godly people in his life to help him be a better man. Nope. Not once. None of that. Saul seems practically incapable of evaluating himself and evaluating his circumstances. Never at any point throughout the reading of Samuel do we read, Saul, of having an internal dialogue or maybe even saying out loud, man, how did things go from this all the way to this? How did this happen? How did I get here? You know, where did I go wrong in this process? And come to think of it, how do I get back to where I need to be? How can I fix this? Not a lot of thinking going on in Saul's head. And so Paul, Saul just kind of plunges forward mindlessly as things go from bad to badder to baddest to worse. Now once again, we need to be asking ourselves some questions here. When I make mistakes, when I sin, when I do wrong, what happens next? Do I learn from my mistakes? Am I capable of profiting from what those mistakes could teach me? Do I stop and actually evaluate where I messed up, where I went wrong, so that I don't make that mistake again, so that I can, in fact, improve in the future? In athletics, this is particularly true like in football, high school football, college football. In athletics, coaches actually will share film during the offseason, and they'll actually talk with one another. And lots of times it'll be two teams that maybe met in a bowl game, And so the coach on the losing team will actually reach out to the coach on the winning team and they'll they'll, they'll trade film, they'll they'll trade strategies, and they'll have discussions and they'll talk. And maybe the losing coach will say, hey, how'd you guys beat us so badly in that game? You know, what did you see in our defense that was weak? How are you able to, to stifle our offense so effectively? You know, what are you guys doing differently than we are? There's all this talking and communicating and evaluating and sharing of ideas. You want to know why coaches do that? You want to know why they are actually willing to swallow their pride and ask someone else, hey, why did you guys beat us so bad? You want to know why coaches do that? Coaches do that because they want to get better. Now, if football coaches are willing to do that for an earthly prize... What should Christians be doing for an imperishable crown? In fact, what is your response to the various people, the various coaches, if you will, in your life, who are trying to help you to do some of that learning and that growing? What is your response to them? You know, Saul, he regularly shut those people out. Samuel, nah, not listening to you. Uh, The priest, let's just kill them so I don't have to pay attention to them. Jonathan, ah, you're my son, I'm not going to pay attention to you. I'm definitely not taking any advice from David. And that is why at the end of Saul's life, he is consulting a medium, and that's because it's because he doesn't have anyone else to consult. And so who's helping you? Who are you consulting, and who's consulting you? Do you have godly people in your life that will hold you accountable? Are you willing to listen to them? Listen to them when even a rebuke comes, or a hard admonition comes in your direction? You know, maybe you're thinking right now, is talking about all this evaluating and learning from our mistakes, you might be thinking, well, Josh, I just don't really have time 
for all of that kind of you know deep introspection. Don't have time to do all this you know deep evaluating of my life. Oh, but you do, Christian. You do, because in just a few minutes we will gather around this table. We will observe the Lord's Supper. And yes, we will remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But a big part of the Supper, according to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, is that we will examine ourselves. And that provides a prime opportunity to look closely at our lives and to think about our walk with God. Now, what happens when we do that examining and that evaluating? Do we just kind of beat ourselves up about that? Oh, another week. And I didn't do very well. I didn't serve God like I should. I just, I was pretty awful this week. Or do you actually move past that point to say, how did that happen? Reflecting on my life here in the past seven days, I've not been what I ought to be. How exactly did that come to be? You know, if I come to think of it, this is three weeks in a row now, during this evaluation time, that I am finding myself being burdened by the same sin. What's going on here? Why do I keep falling into that sin? Who is it in my life that is enabling me to keep giving in to that temptation? What am I maybe going to do different in the next seven days so that I don't find myself in that sin again? That, that is the process of examination and evaluation. That is learning from our mistakes. And Saul never seemed to ask those sorts of questions. And as a result, his life is just one long series of awful mistakes that never seem to end. Which brings me then to this third and final idea this morning. And that is, when we look at Saul's life on the whole, I think it is fair to say that he just never seemed to grow any kind of deep spirituality. Go back to the beginning of Saul's story. This is chapter 9. In chapter 9, the Lord sends Samuel to go and find Saul. He talks a little bit here about what it will be like for Israel to have a king. What's the king's job? In 1 Samuel chapter 9, look in verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Now, there's a textual variant in that verse because some translations say he will reign or he will rule over my people. But the ESV renders it, he shall restrain my people. And I think that's a very appropriate rendering because what was the king's job? As you reigned and ruled as a king, what was your job? Your job was to restrain, to restrain God's people from lawlessness and wickedness and idolatry. He was to lead the people of God, not be led by the people. And that is something that we see Samuel having difficulty with all throughout his reign. Chapter 13. In chapter 13, look in verse 8. In chapter 13, in verse 8, this is when Samuel tells him, you need to go and you need to wait for me so that we can then offer sacrifice. Verse 8, Saul waited seven days, time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people, the people were scattering from him. And so Saul said, bring the burnt offerings over here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. 
Saul's all worked up about the people. Oh, the people are going to get restless. The people are getting impatient. So much so that he's actually willing to violate the priestly order in order to keep the people happy and to keep the people from leaving. Come on, Saul. You know you can't do that. You're not of the priestly tribe. You can't be offering sacrifice. You can't do that. Now, maybe we're willing to cut Saul a pass here. Maybe this seems like kind of early in his reign, you know, kind of getting some of the jitters worked out as the king. Maybe we'll cut him a pass here. Well, how about we jump to chapter 15 now? In chapter 15, this is that occasion where Samuel confronts him about not utterly destroying the Amalekites. What's Saul say about that? In 1 Samuel 15, look in verse 24. In verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Hey, that's, that's pretty good. Admitting, owning up to his sin, I have sinned. For I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words. Why? Because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Saul continues to be concerned more about the people and about being a people pleaser than being a God pleaser. Instead of restraining the people, Saul says, well, I just kind of let the people tell me what to do. In fact, maybe the most damning statement of all is in verse 30. Drop down in that very same chapter, verse 30. Saul said, I've sinned. Hey, there's kind of paying that lip service to sinning. I've sinned. What's this? He says to Samuel, Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. You see, not only is it all about pleasing and looking good in front of the people, but Saul actually is now referring to them as my People, No reference here that they are God's people. And this does in fact become a lifelong pattern for Saul. Would you jump ahead now to the end? Look in chapter 28. In chapter 28, I've referenced this event already a couple of times about the medium at Endor. What is he doing there? Why is he going and consulting a witch? In 1 Samuel 28, look in verse 5. In verse 5, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines... He was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Can I ask you an important question right here? How old is Saul in chapter 28? Have you ever thought about that? How old is Saul right there? Well, we're not entirely certain, because there's some manuscript issues. If you were to read chapter 13 and verse 1, there's kind of some issues there depending on what translation that you're reading from. So we're not entirely exactly sure by the exact number, but there is a very good tradition that says that Saul was probably about 30 years old when he began to reign. About 30. And that he then reigned for about another 40 years. And so if you want to give or take maybe a few years on either side of that number, then what that means is, is that means that by the time we get to chapter 28, he is at least, I would say, 60 years old. And he may be as much as 70 years old. That means then that the mistakes that he is making here, these are not the mistakes of a teenager. These are not the mistakes of a youth. These are not the mistakes that we expect young people to make from time to time. No, when you read 1 Samuel chapter 28, this means this man has gray in his hair. And he has lived a long time. And he has went through a lot of experiences. Yet in all of that time, and in all of those experiences, he has never developed a deep walk with the Lord. When we meet Saul in the beginning, he is afraid. 
And he is trembling. And he is uncertain. And he doesn't trust God. Chapter 13. And then the last thing that we see Saul do here in chapter 28, he is afraid and he is trembling and he is uncertain and he still doesn't trust God. His life is little more than a desperate scramble because there is no depth in his spiritual life. Saul's relationship with God seems to have started kind of at the shallow end of the pool. And then when things got a little bit tough, instead of venturing out into the deeper waters with the Lord, Saul just didn't about face and got out of the pool altogether. There isn't anything about him that shows that he actually made progress in his spiritual life. And I'll say again, I understand that a lack of spiritual depth, that can be a problem when you're a young person. I get that. That's natural. But when you're 50, when you're 60, When you're 70? Saul, come on! Why didn't you grow spiritually? And I am eager to kind of emphasize this point here. Because you know, a lot of time, and we actually spend a lot of time, talking to our young people. We do lots of things to kind of of reach our young people with the Word of God. Vacation Bible School is one example. That's what we'll be doing the next few days. Talk about things that will help equip and prepare young people to serve the Lord. I preach sermons from time to time that I'll tell at the beginning, these are geared directly to the young people in the audience. I'll even present one of those kinds of lessons here in the next couple of weeks as we get ready for kids going back to school. I was invited a couple of weekends ago to go to Bowling Green and to do some lessons just for young people. We do that kind of stuff for young people, and as well we should. That's good and that's important, and we ought to do that. But it is interesting to me just how often the Bible shows us silver-haired folks who make a total mess of things because across the course of their life, they did not grow in their relationship with the Lord. Which means, can I just say a word? And I don't often speak words specifically to the older folks. Can I say a word to those of you that maybe have celebrated one of those big 5-0 birthdays? Maybe a big 6-0 birthday? Or a 7-0 birthday? Or maybe even beyond that? Are you thinking about this? You taking this last point seriously? Where am I with the Lord? What do I do now that 20 years ago in my service to God, I couldn't do, I wasn't able to do? What temptations have I been able to overcome? How am I stronger now? Or maybe is it possible, maybe is it possible that I'm just kind of treading water? Am I in the same place now that I've pretty much always been? Am I maybe even worse? Am I going backwards a little bit? Was I a shallow Christian back then? And here now, 40 years later, I'm still the same shallow Christian. Saul never grew. It led to his demise. Christian, are you heeding that warning? Don't let a stagnant, spiritual, ungrowing life lead to your demise as well. Now, I really do believe that when you kind of just take a step back, you kind of look at Saul's life in that way, kind of look at it on the whole, in the big picture, then really it is not very hard to come to the conclusion that he didn't have a heart for God. And it is my hope that by enumerating these three big ideas, 
that you and I will then take deliberate steps to avoid duplicating His same miserable failure. Because I want you to know that not only did Saul damage the throne, not only did he damage the kingdom and the nation, not only did he damage his family, he cost his children their lives on the battlefield. I want you to know as well that there is not much at all to suggest that Saul was ready to meet the Lord when he died. That's the saddest part of the Saul story. Which is why I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave this earth as someone who did not have a heart for God. Because when that day comes and I stand before my Maker, I want to be known by Him as one who was after His own heart. That I was chasing God's heart. I was pursuing His heart. It was the quest of my life. I desired it and I wanted it as my very own. And Lord willing, this week, over the next few days, we'll talk exactly about what it means to have that kind of heart for the Lord. It's fair to ask though right now, what kind of heart you got at this present moment? Would you be defined in the way that David was, as a man or a woman after God's own heart? Or if right now, if the Lord were to return, if you were to drop dead right now, and you then had to stand before your Maker, would you be known as someone who did not have a heart for God? What a frightening proposition. I would hope this morning that you would have the kind of heart that would seek to know God, and to be like Him, to develop His qualities and His attributes. And if that is your desire, but you have yet to take those initial steps to become one of God's children, then right now, It's a wonderful time to do that. We set aside this time in our service to extend the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ, to invite you to become a Christian, to invite you to act upon what faith that you do have, the faith that I hope motivates you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, to confess that with your lips, to repent, to turn away from sin and to go turning to God and to His ways, and then to be baptized in water for the remission, the washing away of every sin so that you can become one of God's children. Can we help somebody to do that this morning, if you're ready to do that? You are a child of God, but, ah, there's a heart issue. You're not being what the Lord wants you to be. You've not been growing. Maybe some of these other things have been plaguing your life. Brother or sister, let's get that fixed. Repent of that. Seek God's forgiveness in prayer. If us as your brothers and sisters can help you to to pray, and to encourage you in some other way, we stand ready to do just that. Let's all be committed that as we leave here this day, all of us would be able to say with integrity in our hearts that I am a person after God's own heart. Let's make that a reality. Let's do that right now while we stand and while we sing.